Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by the Scott Miller. Good morning to you, sir. Mighty Pete, welcome. Thanks for the invite today. Appreciate yeah. the platform and the spotlight. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, listen, it's great to have you on. It's always it's always fun to cross the pond and uh, you've been kind enough to get up early this morning to join us and you're, you're in, in a hotel room. So, Scott, first of all, tell us, who are you? What do you do and where are you from? Well, typically I might have a more illustrious background, but today I am in a hotel room in Dallas, Texas, where I'm delivering a keynote. I'm mainly an author, so I spend much of my time virtually or live in person giving keynotes around the world. Uh, I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, here in the States with my wife and our three sons that are seven, nine, and 11. And I've just concluded a 25-year career with the Franklin Covey Company, of course, the world's most preeminent leadership development firm founded by famed Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who, of course, wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I was their chief marketing officer for 10 years. I now host what is the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. It hits 6 million to 7 million people every Tuesday where I interview like you, um, interesting thought leaders, authors, CEOs, celebrities. I write a weekly column for Inc. Magazine. I've spent my entire 30-year career in the leadership business. Prior to the Franklin Covey Company, I was an associate of the Walt Disney Company for four years, where I uh, grew up in Orlando, Florida. I'm originally from Florida in the US. I lived in the UK for some time in Oxfordshire, and I've lived in Chicago, Florida, Utah now. And uh, I'm a four-time best-selling author. Fortunately, my books have sold enough to bestow that on me. And I'm writing mainly about marketing, leadership, podcasting as well, and delighted to talk today about my successes and some of my failures with you and the audience. Oh wow, that's a that's a phenomenal CV you're charting there. So uh, congratulations! It's 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 a beautiful, beautiful thing. So lots of mistakes along the way. Don't be impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. We hear about all the good stuff, and you know that's that's what it's all about, right? But so tell us first of all, what what does fire in the valley mean to Scott? Well, I think it's your passion. It's your mission. It's your purpose. It's the reason you reason you get up. Reason you do what you do. It's the reason you keep going and you're knocked back down. It's your perseverance in the tough times when you're against all odds and you're questioning your strategy and your talents and what you're great at keeps you focused. It allows you to reinvent, allows you to disrupt yourself, allows you to, uh, to, to stay, I'd say to stay focused on what matters to you in the face of perhaps vitriol or in some cases, hate or criticism. It's it's your um, it's the gas in your tank, right? It's the fire in your belly, as you say. Hmm. Is something you have? Is something you've always had? What? How does it work out for for Scott then? You know, for me, it is a bit innate. I like all of us. Um, our strengths, when overplayed, can become our weaknesses, right? Any strength you have, taken too far, can become a weakness. I I get excited about everything. I mean, I could get excited about dirt, <laughs> apples, earthworms, tennis. I mean. 
I, I tend to be a innately grateful person. I try to be innately a, an abundant person, but I probably get excited about too many things. I have a fire in my belly about pretty much anything I get exposed to. I have a natural level of curiosity. I think I'm just generally a grateful person for all that I have, all that I'm doing for my failures, for my successes. So I'm constantly on the move. People are always telling me, Scott, slow down, calm down. And that's not possible. It's not in chemically, I'm impossible of not being uh, excited and having to quote you a fire in my belly. It is who I am. I think some people need a break from that, a break from me. Um, but it's who the Lord made me. It's who I am. And it's probably where most of my successes and most of my challenges uh, derive from. So what, what's the key default there? Is, is it down to curiosity? Is it about passion? What, what's the sort of the, the main driver for you then? You know, I come back to this word gratitude. I, I think I was born in a religious family. My mother was a Methodist. My father was a Catholic. They're both still alive. I was raised with a sense of appreciation for all that we had, for our life that we had, that we had, there was a reason we're here, that we're not just here accidentally. And so I think for me, it's almost a duty, a responsibility to get up every day and go do my best and to show up my best and to give back to others. I try to be a contagiously positive person. I have seven values that I live my life around. One of them, in fact, is positivity. Not falsely positive, not naively positive. There's times when I, you know, don't feel despair, but there's times when I'm depressed or overwhelmed or have setbacks. But, you know, the more people you know, the more tragedy you know. The more people you know, the more death you experience and, 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 and trauma. I've had a very blessed life. I've had actually very little death and trauma in my own life. But the reason I mention that is the more people you know, the more you realize how precious life is and how kind of have this one chance. So I think you're on earth in a physical body. So make the most of it. Not everybody has that same level of um, privilege or runway or head start that perhaps I had. I recognize that there is such a thing that all of us have certain levels of privilege or perhaps disadvantages that others didn't experience. But I try to make the most of every day. I work hard. I play hard. I need to laugh more. I don't laugh enough. Three boys kicking my you-know-what every day of the week. So I need to uh, laugh more, but I generally have a spirit of gratitude. I live my life through the lens of not I have to and not I ought to, but rather I get to. I get to get up at four o'clock this morning in Dallas and take a shower and finish my email and write out a hundred thank you notes to people who bought you know, something from my website. I get to get on to your podcast today. I absolutely live my life through I get to take out the garbage. I get to rake the yard. And that's, I think, in me, been a driving force that I get to do everything I do, even when it perhaps is burdensome or troublesome or intimidating or uncomfortable. I try to live my life through the lens of I get to in everything I do. And what, what then, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful mindset to, to, to carry, really. But I mean, what, what are your non-negotiables then, Scott? I mean, what, what are the things that is just... It's happening. It's there. It's part of who you are. What's happening? Well, you, I merely went to politics. My negotiables are uh, I, don't, I don't get involved in the cancel culture. I don't get involved in hate. I don't get involved in, in um, lies or perpetuation of innuendo or gossip about other people. 
I'm human. I obviously, you know, fall into some of those, those traps and find myself very quickly. To quote Dr. Covey, the founder of the Franklin Covey Company, he said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. And I fail at that, but I try every day to be a decent representative of um, what he taught. There are people I don't like, the people who don't like me. Uh, but I try to set a decent standard for building and not destroying, for uniting and not dividing, for showing others grace in the hopes they'll show me grace as well. Well, then, would you be driven more by the sort of the, the, the opportunity of more or to prevent the pain of less? Any of my psychiatrists? This is, I'm loving this. This is awesome. <laughs> um, that's never been presented to me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, be contemplative about it. Uh, a wise friend of mine, Franklin Covey, once said to me, you'll never have enough until you've defined how much is enough whether it's compensation or money <clears throat> or vacation days or credit or fame or love or friends or relationships, you'll never have enough until you define how much is enough. So I am driven by more, but not greed. I was, I, I was not raised to be greedy. I was raised to be abundant. I philosophically believe there are enough podcasts for everyone. There's enough publishers for everyone. There's enough keynotes for everyone. I'm not a scarce person, not a scarce bone in my body, but I'm probably sometimes naively generous, but that's okay because I'm smart enough not to let people take advantage of me. Uh, I'm not driven by fear. I was on a podcast a few weeks ago and the person asked me what my fears were. And I said, well, I'm from Florida. Of course, my fears are sharks, snakes, and alligators. Beyond that, I don't have much fear. I can speak in front of 10,000 people. I can show up to an audience and have one person sitting there. I can um, talk without a microphone. I can use no slides. You could give me 10 minutes of notice and I could go give a, I could go give a talk in front of someone about a topic that I barely understand and facilitate. I don't have a lot of fear. I'm not driven by fear. Hmm. I know that everybody has a little bit of imposter syndrome. I was on a podcast recently and the host was interviewing a famous entrepreneur here in the US. She, she built this, um, this delicate spray you spray in the bathroom and it eliminates, neutralizes any odors from your, you know, your experience in there it's called <laughs> poopery, like poopery is called poopery. And it's I'll this see, massive company <laughs> now. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars, just a very common woman like you and I. And, and she was asked if she had imposter syndrome. She said, it's not a syndrome. I'm an imposter. She said, I, I'm an entrepreneur. Just I'm thinking like everybody else. There's, there's no syndrome. It's just I'm absolutely an imposter. I think all of us to some extent can relate to that, right? We're kind of building it as we go. And so I don't, I guess I'm more driven by growth and learning than I am by fear. Long answer, but I don't tend to, that fear really isn't an emotion that I experience ever. What, what is your main driving force then? I mean, what, what gets you up and going the most? Well, it's changed over life. Okay. Um, I think because I was married at the age of 41, I was single until I was 41. I've been married now for about uh, just over 13, maybe 12 and a half, 13 years. I should know that. I think, <laughs> we'll, we'll add it uh, accordingly. <laughs> I think it's 13. It'll be 13 years next year. I think earlier on, I was motivated 
a lot by professional accolades, my income, my title, external things. And I don't regret that at all. I don't think that's a problem at all. I was very much motivated as my identity was attached to my professional accomplishments. I didn't have a family. I never thought I would get married, actually. And then I met this lady at the gym. And I was 38, and we fell in love and got married and had three boys. And now I'm motivated by my boys because now my, my, my calling has changed. My, my, my identity has changed. I'm a father. And first and foremost, more so than a podcast host or an author, or I'm not defined now by my car, although I like nice cars. I'm not defined by my home, although I like a nice home. I like material things. I'm not ashamed to, ashamed to admit that at all. But my, my number one calling in life is to raise these three boys in a very tumultuous world, dangerous world, trying to raise gentlemen who are kind and generous and courteous and thoughtful, show empathy, that are forgiving and ask for forgiveness, that look you in the eye and shake your hand and say, yes, ma'am, and no, sir, and apologize if they get your gender wrong, but they are good what I call old-fashioned values and respect other people and their choices. So my main motivation now is raising these three boys and launching them well <clears throat> into the world. I'm very clear on that. Now it takes resources and economic uh, stability to make that happen, to pay for braces and for glasses and for school and for college and sports and tutoring. And my gosh, they're bankrupting me, brother. Um, but that my calling has shifted. My motivation has shifted. Do you think, I mean, has that almost become part of your purpose or do you think your purpose is, 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 a, is it further on than that even more? I don't know. I, I, you know I, I, I could say my purpose is to raise these three boys, but I think it's broader than that. I mean, you know, I obviously have a marriage and I'm trying to keep my marriage together as much as the boys, we, we, we are convinced they plot every night how to destroy mom and dad's relationship. And sometimes they are successful. More break so you. Yeah. yeah, it's working. <laughs> marriage is tough. Um, marriage is tougher probably even than parenting. I, I have hired and terminated hundreds of people. I've been involved in lawsuits and litigation and de depositions. I've had food poisoning on intercontinental flights. <laughs> All of it is eclipsed by parenting and marriage. Uh, so I don't say that my purpose, I, I think like a lot of us, I, every one of us, I hope my purpose is to lift and not diminish. My hope is to inspire and not depress. My hope is to maybe make life a little easier for other people who haven't had the blessings, the opportunities, the gifts, the timing, the luck that I have. I've worked very hard in my life. I, 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 am, I am proud of what I have accomplished. I'm proud of the mistakes that I've made because I've made them and learned from them, hopefully. My, my calling, my purpose is probably bigger than that, but my primary purpose, I believe, is to launch these three boys. I never wanted to be a parent. I, I don't enjoy parenting. I mean, I'm, I'm quite comfortable saying that. I do not enjoy parenting. I'd rather be in the Malfi Coast with a bottle of champagne and my wife and some friends having a blast, right? I mean, I'd rather be shopping. I'd rather be playing tennis. I'd rather be eating bread and cheese. I'd rather not be telling them for the ninth time, did you brush your teeth? And they lied to me eight times. <laughs> but welcome to being a parent. 
They're, they're testing you on the, uh, it doesn't matter how many books you've sold. They don't care about that. That's... They don't care. <laughs> I know. I'll, I'll text my oldest son. Hey, my book was sold today in um, Tbilisi. My book was translated into German, to, to, um, German, or I've been invited to fly to, to Georgia, the country. Like, I don't care. Dad, dad, I want a new sticker for my iPhone. I'm like, <laughs> it's not about me to them. Yeah. How is the ego out of interest? You have to ask the, the, the team that I've assembled around me. Uh, you know, I was once interviewing a recent American psychiatrist, a very famous psychiatrist. He is a brain imaging expert. He's a neuroscientist. And I was, I was, I was uh, a friend of mine. He's a, he's a celebrity. And I asked him about this question. He said, uh, this is what he said, quote, Everyone's out for themselves. Some of us are just better at hiding it than others. Actually, I think this thinking phrase, what I think the phrase he said is some of us are just more sophisticated at hiding it better than others. Uh, so there's that truth. There is that mm. truth. Mm. Uh, I am an, I, I've mentioned this word numerous times. Gratitude rules my life. So of course I have an ego. Of course I enjoy hitting a home run on stage. Of course I enjoy you know, getting emails and, and, and Instagram messages and Facebook messages about how my book changed someone's life or my book challenged them. And I also get those that say your books suck and you're a hack and you're not a writer. You're just a, I, I get all that too. I don't really pay attention to the hate. I have an ego. I have a healthy ego. I think the key for me is to never let it turn into arrogance. Never let it turn into entitlement. To every day, we recruit my team members to express to them verbally how much I appreciate them. That doesn't mean I don't have high courage conversations. Here's a good example. I'm here in Dallas today to speak to 400 people. Um, I'm speaking on this book, Master Mentors, that I wrote. Um, it is seven o'clock in the morning. The books have not arrived. I speak at three. The books have not arrived. So we've had some very high courage conversations last night around why have the books not arrived? Why did we ship the books to arrive the day before? Oh, wait, the day of? Where did we break down? This is not acceptable. No part of this is acceptable. So now we have two shipments of books coming, one behind the other. And so I'm not afraid to have high courage, uncomfortable conversations. I talk straight. I often move outside my comfort zone. I often call things out in very plain language to set quality standards. Some might see that as arrogance. I see that as serving the client and building my team's skills so that they can thrive in their own careers one day when they choose to leave me and go do something that meets their needs better. So I, I hope, I'm sure there are people that would use the word arrogant to describe me. I would hope that that would be because they don't know me. They think they know me, but they don't know me. It's I'm a fine line, answer. isn't it? It is a fine line. It is a fine line. clear about your vision and, you know, sort of... I don't know. I don't know how you describe both sides of that line, really. I once read a phrase, this is kind of a trite, but it, again, this is, it's simplistic, so don't overanalyze it, or to your listeners and viewers. You know, successful people are merely willing to do what unsuccessful people aren't. I get up every morning at 4 a.m. I write my column for Inc. Magazine from 4 to 5. I write my books from 5 to 6.15, I'm a dad, you get the point, right? And I work, I'm up every day at four o'clock in the morning, working, thinking, 
strategizing, emailing, posting, writing. And so I don't have any apologies for my hard work and the benefits that I've created from it. I have worked my, I've worked extraordinarily hard. I've helped other people build wealth for themselves and fame for themselves. But if you want to become influential, you want to become financially independent, which is one of my key goals, is to become financially independent of other people, of other entities. I want to set my family up for some level of opportunity. I don't need a yacht off of Sardinia. I don't need a home in Lake Como. Well, that sounds pretty good right now. <laughs> uh, I, so I am willing to do what other people are not willing to do. I'm willing to move outside my comfort zone. I'm willing to reinvent myself. I'm willing to put myself in situations where the average person isn't comfortable. I'm willing to fail publicly. I was interviewing a friend of mine, Rachel Hollis, a very famous US author. And she said to me, most people aren't afraid of failure. What they're afraid of is having other people see them fail. And I'm not afraid of that. I'm, I'm an odd duck. I'm not afraid of having you see me fail because I literally will just bounce back up, laugh about it, call it out. I'll never act as if it didn't happen. I, I will probably make light of it unless it's something that I seriously did wrong. And then I will uncomfortably discuss it in public and own it. Apologize, take responsibility and move on like that. I don't look back. Now, the consequence of that is um, I don't live in the past. I live in the future. And that's good and bad because you'll notice I didn't say I gotta live in the present. I don't live in the present. And I need to do more of that with my marriage, with my family, with my team and my clients. I tend to live in the future because I like to be in control of my life, almost maniacally. And I don't want anybody else to gain control over my career, my success, my influence, my emotions, my attitude, my finances. So I very much live in the future, making sure that I am laying the path and I am anticipating what could go right or what could go wrong because I have a fierce sense of extreme ownership. I don't blame anybody for anything. I hold people accountable but I'm very focused on the future. So for me, my biggest opportunity, I think, is to balance living in the future with being present, living in the present. That's a challenge for me. Well, that's super interesting. I mean, you're, I suppose you, does your default ideas, status, things like that is, that, is that intuitively led or is it a case of, you know, fulfill a productive life and actually the ideas the intuition the opportunities come the more you work and the more you do or is it a case of i'll sit here wait till the the idea and the intuition comes and then we will act on that i don't know the answer to that question it's a profound question here's what i think i'm learning i mentioned to you i don't really have any fears i have an irrational concern about my future finances, an irrational concern about my future finances. I'm not concerned about my current finances. I'm a, I'm a fairly responsible person. I make you know, impulsive purchases. I take sometimes vacations that I probably should have saved for versus not you know, funding in the future. Welcome to being human, right? So, but generally I've led a pretty, a fairly responsible life. 
My parents raised me in a fairly conservative family, both in terms of values and also finances. They didn't, they never lived outside their means. So I'm 52. My wife is uh, 53. My wife is 40. There's actually a, a fairly big age difference. So I'm thinking about, you know, um, in America, we call them 401ks or IRAs, right? Or our financial savings. I'm thinking about long-term health care. I'm thinking about, you know, life in my 70s and 80s. And so I'm generally a little, maybe too fixated on my future finances. And it drives me a lot. It, dry, it haunts me. It irrationally haunts me. Again, I'm not trying to, like I said, buy a yacht in Sardinia, but I am responsible for four people. I'm completely financially responsible for four people. My wife is a full-time stay-at-home mom and manager of all of our lives. It's a big job. She could have had a career, but I, so I take that weight pretty seriously, very seriously. Um, you can, might even say I'm sometimes fixated on it. So to answer your question, I think I am somewhat obsessed with being in control of my future, my future books, my, my future guests, my future homes, my future opportunities. I like to be in control of my life. I once heard a horrifying statement from a colleague, and it's super insulting, Pete, but it's piercingly accurate. And she said, for those of us who work in organizations, you're never in the room when your career is decided for you. And it's quite repugnant, but it's very true. Inside organizations, your career is being decided by people above you in closed door sessions. Well, is Pete right for this role? Should we move Scott to Dubai? Should we do this? Now let's pass on him and do that. And I just, I heard that and thought, yeah, that is both true and it's insulting. And I don't want that to be part of who I am. I, I want to be in fierce control of my life. Now, I give some credence to serendipity. I think there is, there is some uh, value around timing. I'm not sure I believe in luck. Luck is kind of, you know, when opportunity meets preparation and it's the right time. Hmm. But to the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the extent I can control the factors that impact me, I like to be in control. And perhaps that means I'm a controlling person but it's something I'm aware of and I'm trying to create some balance around. Again, it's a long answer to your, I'm not sure I answered your question, but I tried. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm curious. I mean, how does that control and that, that drive, how does that serve you then? Yeah. Yeah. I'm very clear on that. I mean, I know right now what books I'm writing that are launching in 2022. I know what books that I'm launching and writing in 2023. I know whether or not I'm going to continue doing this a year from now or what I'm already pivoting in something else. I'm a fairly strategic thinker, a fairly long-term thinker. I'm, it very much impacts what I will do today. I know exactly right now. I mean, like, for instance, there are 10 volumes in this book. This book launched last month. It's become a number one Amazon bestseller. It is based on my first year of podcasting, Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. There are 10 volumes in this book. This is the first volume. I've just completed volume two, and I'm already writing volume three. That will come out in 2023. So I'm very much thinking about what my life looks like one, two, three, four, five years. And I've, I've always thought in years and in decades. When I was 23, 
I knew that I wanted to run for Congress when I was 60. Congress, of course, the American version of parliament mm. in the UK. And I, and I believe there's parliament in Ireland also. So I've always thought in terms of years and decades, not in terms of you know hours, minutes, days, or weeks. I'm just going to circle back because I mean, when we talked about pain and pleasure, you, you mentioned it was more pleasure driven. But yet the fear of not having for your family or your family not having as a consequence of you or the fear of losing control. It's, it's sort of, there's a mix there, right? There's, there's a real sort of bit of a dichotomy. Of course. But is of that is, I, is I, the contrast that's actually serving you? I'm wondering, I can't quite put my finger on it. Well, when you said the word pleasure, I equate pleasure with congruency. I equate pleasure with lack of pain, lack of anxiety, lack of worry. I, I actually take great pleasure in not being worried about my future, about my stability, about my ability to provide for my family. I take great pleasure in that. My biggest irrational fear is being financially unstable, which, you know, if you saw my finances, you'd say it's lunacy. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not rolling thick like some billionaire, but I've worked very hard and I have some modicum of financial security, not foolproof. I need stretch. I have to work. I can't not work. I, I'll work my entire life because I have a seven-year-old. I have a nine-year-old. I have an 11-year-old. I got married late in life, right? Most of my contemporaries, their kids right now are graduating college and getting married. I have a seven-year-old in first grade. I've got like 50 years of private school tuition and college tuition. For me, pleasure, I would define pleasure as the absence of anxiety. I would define pleasure as um, a sufficient level of control over my health, my life, my finances, the safety of my family. Um, that may sound like it's fear-based. It might be. I see it as um, I see it. I, I, I would I would choose to see it as I like to decide my life. I recognize act or be acted upon, have a plan or become part of someone else's plan. And I want to be part of my own plan. By the way, I've been an officer in a public company for 25 years. I I've sufficiently proven I've checked the box that I can be part of an organization. I can take commands from others. Right. I don't have to be in charge all the time, about 25, 30 years, 30 years between Disney and Franklin Covey. And now the next one third of my life, I'm hope, or maybe 40% of my life, I'm going to be um, fiercely in control of my destiny and my future. I think I didn't like, as much as I had a great career, Pete, amazing career. I, the one thing I never liked was, was I'm going to use the word, the fear of having other people control my destiny. Would I get fired? Would I get promoted? Would I earn more money? That's why I love sales. I've been in sales my whole life. I like being in control of my income, of my trajectory, of my career. I like to be in control of my own life. I don't need to control your life. I don't need to control anybody else's life. My wife might disagree sometimes, but I like I like to be in control of my future as much as I can. I recognize that there are, there are laws that govern our behavior, right? Pandemic comes, got a vaccine. I vote. I pay my taxes. I, I, don't, I, I don't have this sort of fierce mountain.
man mentality where don't tread on me. I, I can be quite compliant. I don't always have to be in charge. There, there are forces in life that are greater than you. You do things that are you know, for the good of humanity. Um, I, I was telling my wife a couple of days ago, we were talking about in, 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 the, in the States, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, uh, a big momentum to, to uh, prick your finger and test your DNA and find out, you know, what part are you of this culture or that race or this heritage? It's all the rage in the U.S. is finding your DNA right now. And people are using it for family reunions and, you know, helping their, their, their aging grandparents really discover their heritage and that kind of thing. There's also an oppositional force going on. Oh, well, if you prick your finger, then they're going to have all your DNA in between Facebook and the government. They're going to make, you know what? <laughs> Life is too short. I'll give up some privacy for safety. I'll give up some security for convenience, right? I mean, my wife will be in the iPad Googling sofas. And within a matter of minutes, my Facebook feed has like, you know, all these Facebook ads, right? And Alexa, you know what? I'm paying my taxes. I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not doing anything I'm embarrassed about. Generally, if it makes my life easier, I'll line up to it. If it gives me more, gives me less anxiety, more comfort, more security, and perceivably more control of my life, I'm involved. I'm in. How would it feel to be out of control? I feel like this might be one of those TV interventions, you know, where if you have like a drug problem and your family comes around and they intervene, <laughs> which I don't, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, the question was, the question was what? How does it feel to be out of control? I would know. I would not know. Because I have the false illusion of always being in control. I, how would it feel to be out of control? Come on. I mean, I, I, I've, I've not been in control many times in my life, right? All through academia, I was very much in being controlled by my teachers and professors. And uh, my wife is very much sometimes in control. We have a balance of power because I am the sole income earner. My wife manages all of our family finances, all of the money. She makes all the decisions. She pays all the bills. Um, I, I don't have any involvement in that whatsoever. I was raised in a family where there was one income. And so to have a balance of power, my, my mom managed all the money. I liked that idea. And so I'm not in control of our day-to-day -day finances at all. I work for publishers. They decide if my books are published or not, right? So I'm not in control of everything in life. But Generally speaking, I think that I am in control. I am sufficiently in control of my own life. I don't need to be in control of your life. I don't need to run this hotel. I don't need to decide the program on that TV. I'm not controlling what questions you're asking me. So to, to paint me, which you're not, but for someone to paint me as this, you know, dic that's absurd. I'm not a dictator at all. I, I, I dictate the decisions that I make. I don't want someone else making decisions in my life but I have no idea what will be on the breakfast buffet downstairs. I have no idea what Uber I'll be in this afternoon. I have no idea what airline or what seat I'm flying on back home to Salt Lake tonight. I have no idea what the convention hall looks like, whether it'll be a handheld or a lavalier mic, right? I have no idea. Um, I will an hour beforehand because my team will prep me through all of that, right? I have no idea if the books are going to show up today. It's likely they're not. 
I'm not happy about that, but I will crush the keynote regardless, right? I'm not one of those who will refuse to go on because the books aren't here. <laughs> but to answer your question, at the age of 53 and three decades of a corporate career, a very high profile, highly responsible corporate career, a officer in a public company with enormous pressure, responsibility, revenue, commitments made to shareholders and, and Wall Street analysts and boards of directors, I think there is enormous value in um, taking extreme ownership over the things that you have said you will do. One of my legacies, my reputation is I make and I keep commitments. And I try my best not to over promise, but I make and keep commitments. And if that means that then I need to be in control to make and keep commitments, so be it. It's interesting because even when you were saying, you know, as you say, we don't know what's on the, the, the breakfast buffet downstairs, but what you can control is your attitude towards it, right? That's right. So you can bounce down the stairs and say, listen, whatever will be, will be. And we're going to, we're going to absolutely blast this out of the water, no matter what happens here. So beautifully said, that's a great summation. I am nearly impenetrably controlled in control of my mindset, my mood, my paradigm. There, there, there can be people on a plane that are, you know, near rioting. I've been on a plane once where there was a near riot. I sat in my seat and read my book and just sort of repeated to myself, I will choose my response. I will be in control of how I choose to respond to this. Now, if people were like getting injured, if someone, if a flight attendant was being harmed, I would be the first person to stand up and, st and, and attempt to stop it. I'm not a pansy. I am a, some people have described me as being ferocious. I am ferocious. But I, I'm not scared of much. But I also am fiercely in control of my mindset, of how I choose to react to something else. Sometimes I am tested. I have dropped the F-bomb to my boys in the evening after, you know, a third bloody nose on the white sofa, but generally I'm pretty in control of my emotions. I have found some of the most successful people in my life are those that are fiercely in control of their emotions. It's a struggle for me. I'm not a naturally patient person. I'm a fairly impulsive person. And so I have to work against sort of my natural impulse, which is to respond and react. And I, I'm quite proud of the, uh, the improvement I've made over not letting people lure me into a reaction that will not serve me well later. Later might be one second, one minute, one week, one year. I'm very mindful of asking myself, how do I wanna show up in this moment right now? What will I wish I would have said an hour from now? And I'm really getting better at channeling, how do I want to show up? How do I wanna be remembered in this situation? It may feel good, to say this right now. It may seem like the right thing to do this right now, but in 10 minutes, will I regret that? And I'm getting much more in control of my actions and alignment with my paradigm, my mindset, my belief system. That's come with age and maturity. It wasn't always that way. Hmm. How, how close are you to being your true self? What a percentage? What a distance? Sure. What a date? Whatever. 
What is your background? What What is your background? I'm a building engineer. What the? <laughs> You're a building engineer. Are you married? Yes. Do you have children? Three young children. I feel your pain. How close am I to being my children? I don't have any idea. I've never been asked that question. It's a moving target, I'm guessing. Kind of like an aircraft. You're kind of always a little bit off course, but you end up in your destination. I mean, you know it's Dublin. It's not Dubai. So you're headed you know, directionally there. I, I can't answer that question because I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, if you would have, because my life has changed, right? I mean, I, you would have asked me that. 13 years ago, I probably couldn't have answered it because I probably thought that I was going to be single my whole life. I was quite comfortable being, you know, I won't use the word playboy, but I was comfortable not having any responsibility to anybody other than myself. And now I have sometimes soul crushing responsibility to other people. I can't just get on a plane with four of my best friends and fly to Johannesburg, right? I have to go home and, and, and spell my wife from the nightmare that is our three children that day. I can't answer that question. I have no idea. It's a moving target. Mm. What I can answer is, have I done my best? Have I tried to improve? Have I tried to apologize for the, the things that I said that hurt someone's feelings? Or I tried to deflect responsibility and put it on someone else, which I'm human. So sometimes I'm sure I do that. I don't know. I can't answer that question. Mm. I don't, not that I refuse to. I just don't have a, I don't have a answer. Mm, fair enough. I appreciate that. And tell me, I mean, would you, do you like yourself? Do you love yourself? I do. I do. Sometimes, um, sometimes I have a bit of an inflated sense of how much I like myself. I'll tell you, um, my life has not been without struggle. Uh, I, uh, I'm a lifelong stutterer. I have a very pronounced speech impediment. I have been a stutterer my entire life. I've had decades of speech therapy, speech Pathology. <clears throat> Pardon me. I have two speech coaches. I've had braces three times. I've had headgear. I've had psychotherapy to help me move past my speech impediment. And I've spent my whole life having people tell me, slow down, stop talking so fast, you're slurring your words. I have worked incredibly hard to overcome this debilitating speech impediment, especially in a world where I speak for a living as a chief marketing officer and an executive vice president of thought leadership and a global company. My job is to influence, persuade, to sell. That's hard to do through text and email. And so um, I don't just like myself. I love myself. Not to the point of, I hope, narcissism or to being a sociopath. There are things that I don't like about me that I've come to accept and that I even embrace and try to turn those strengths into weaknesses or turn those weaknesses into strengths. Um, I'm quite vulnerable. I will talk about my successes as easily as I will all my messes. You ask me about being fired, about being demoted, about my credit score 15 years ago. My car being repossessed in my teens. I mean, I'll talk about anything because I just generally believe the best leaders, the best parents, the best spouses, the best friends are those that are able to discuss and teach through their mistakes in the hopes that others can learn from them and avoid them. I've always been of the belief, Pete, that 
the best leaders, the best parents, the best friends are those that are comfortable and confident in their failures and mistakes. Because I cannot replicate your passions, your intellect, your curiosity, your personality, your parents' wealth, your academic inclination. I can't replicate that. I cannot be you. What I can do, however, is have an insatiable curiosity to learn from your, your mistakes, your failures. If I can avoid those, I cannot replicate your successes. I can avoid your failures. So when I'm looking to build a business, I don't look for mentors that are billionaires. I look for people that have launched and had bankruptcies numerous times to learn what did you do long and how do I avoid that? Because my strengths are different than this. When I look at having a long-term marriage, I don't go to people that have had 40-year marriages. I go to people that have had two divorces. What did you do wrong? What were the mistakes? How do I avoid that? I tend to learn more from people's failures than I do their mistakes. And therefore, I tend to teach through my mistakes. I think vulnerability is an actual leadership competency, just like reading a P&L, just like inventory turns, supply chain, cost of goods. I think that being vulnerable, not, not, not in a gratuitous sense or an open kimono sense, right? You, there are boundaries. The workplace is not your confessional. I mentioned I'm a Catholic, so I'm quite comfortable confessing my sins after all those times in that wooden box. Sometimes truthfully, sometimes not so. Child and an adult. Now there's a podcast. Life through the lens of a Catholic. Um, but to answer your question, I like myself and I love myself. And I forgive myself I, pretty, pretty easily. My wife might say too easily, but uh, life is short. And we have seen that in the last 18 months, have we not? I have lost two people I know to the pandemic, lost their lives, the peak of their lives. And uh, life is short. Forgive yourself, learn and move on. And forgive others, move on. Whoops. A building engineer? Good grief. That's fascinating. I should be interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm curious about that sort of, that perspective on it, and just in terms of, well, overall, I mean, would you rather make something or would you rather fix something? Where, where is your mind? Because there's a lot oh, I'm of- I'm a builder. Oh, no, no question. I'm a builder. I can maintain. I can, I can maintain. I, 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 I uh, like a lot of us, I have a short-ish attention span. Hmm. But, you know, put me in the right situation and I can, you know, like I can read a book on seven-hour flight to Paris without barely looking up. So get me in the right situation and my focus is fierce. But I'm a builder. I'm a creator. I like to take nothing and turn it into something. And I can maintain it. I don't choose to maintain it for years, unless it's my brand or my reputation or a book series. But I'm, I, I, I can fix. I can maintain. I think if I had to pick one, it probably would be to create, to build, to take nothing and turn it into something. I like a challenge. I like the CEO to say, we need $3 million of EBITDA by the end of the third quarter from this product. Go figure it out. 
And I like to take it from nothing with a great team of competent people and walk in on the last day of the third quarter and say, $3,380,000 in EBITDA. I like to check in. I can course correct. I can pivot on a dime. I can bruise hard and heal fast. But I'm probably more of a builder than I am a fixer. But that was your question. Yeah. Create versus fix. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting. Tell me, you know, if you were there and just the energy it takes to, to be that and, and that momentum, you know, Caffeine. do you actually... Well, I suppose in terms of the creation and that, I mean, if we were to say, listen, Scott, congratulations, you just hit all your financial targets, the family's taken care of, you are as close to bulletproof as you can be. Um, we're going to remove all those things, right? Yes. Who is Scott? Oh my gosh. I love that you asked this question because I can tell you with crystal clarity, I could slow down. I could even stop. My life could be waking up in the morning having a cup of coffee with my wife and my boys, walking the dog, reading the newspaper, planting some flowers, going to the store and shopping for lunch, having a dinner party with some friends. I could not check social media. I could not write a blog. I could not write a column. I could not get on a plane to Saudi Arabia to give free speeches. I could absolutely slow down and be comfortable in the presence. I believe that. I genuinely believe, and I hope that happens. I think I could live my life more in the present. I often ask myself, and I'll say this to my wife, if I hadn't gotten married and had three kids, what would I be doing right now? Because I likely could have built enough financial security to have like, you know, defined how much is enough? I think that's true. I think I could have by now probably stopped working so hard and perhaps enjoyed some of the fruits of that labor. But I'll never know. Again, I, again, I take that responsibility with great gravitas because my wife, who could have had a very successful career, she chose to not develop those skills. She's highly educated and she chose to dedicate her life to these three boys. She questions that nightly. <laughs> and I validate that with her frequently. Um, but to your point, and I think your question was, you know, is there a point at which I could, you know, live in the present and just enjoy? I don't know, because of the situation that I have created is... These three boys don't need millions of dollars. They don't need to drive Mercedes. They don't need to be at Princeton or Oxford. So I'm realistic. But I think I know what they need in terms of finding their voice and finding and putting them on a, on a, on a path where they discover their passions and their, and their confidence. And I tell you, I've learned in the last 18 months that um, stability and resources. We were all in the same storm, but we weren't all in the same boat. And if I've learned anything, there was immense value in being able to ride this storm out in a large home with a big backyard with plenty of financial resources and medical care 
protect my family and protect friends that needed it as well. And so I saw what resources did for people. Now, at the end of the day, some people that had wild wealth lost their lives. I don't have, I don't have a false sense of that. But I also saw the carnage that happened with small business owners and entrepreneurs and people not able to provide for their families. It's heartbreaking. I did my share helping others. I did my share making sure that our church community could provide for people who didn't have options. So if anything for me, Pete, it made me double down on doing my best to make sure that if I were to pass away early, that my family would be provided for not just materially, but just to have options, right? I mean, really, it's all about just making sure that my family has options, that they're not dependent on someone or something else to make, to make their choices for themselves. Many years from now, what are we writing on your gravestone, your headstone? This is free therapy. I've actually enjoyed this. You said, <laughs> you said in the pre-consult, this might be very cathartic. Damn, you are right. <laughs> this isn't a podcast. It's virtual therapy. Well, I, I you know if, if, hey, if anything, I'm consistent. And I would say that he provided well for his family, not just materially. That I provided my boys with the safe, hopefully warm, loving environment where we hugged and kissed and wrestled and touched each other, where we went on vacations, where, you know, the menu wasn't meatloaf and it wasn't filet mignon, right? It wasn't top ramen and it wasn't lobster, but it was consistent. It's, that's both literal and metaphorical, right? That my parents provided a loving, safe, stable home where there weren't extreme highs and there weren't extreme lows, there was, the, there was the absence of fear where our boys could laugh and giggle and hopefully try new things and explore their passions and that there, was, there were resources to where my boys didn't have to be concerned about whether there was going to be clothes for school or there was going to be you know, tuition for camp. My boys are not entitled, I hope. My boys have chores. Take out the garbage, walk the dog, wash the dog, vacuum the house. They have chores. They will get jobs. So I think my epitaph, I hope, will be he provided well for his family and he gave more than he took. Are you fulfilling your capabilities then? Oh, yes. Oh, I am stretching my capabilities every day of the week. I am... I am more than fulfilling. I am doing my share, whether it be in my church community, whether it be at the school, whether it be with philanthropy, whether it be with my family, whether it be trying to lift others up and build careers for them. I'm very proud of my legacy. I am, if my life ended tomorrow, if my life ended today, I feel good about my soul and I feel good about the lives that I've lifted up and I feel good about the protection that I put in place for my family the opportunities my boys have. My wife will have, um, my wife has the runway with which she can make smart decisions. Does that make sense? I have seen many, I've seen many spouses pass early in life and left their remaining family in a huge bind where this, the non-working spouse had to go get a job. They had to sell their home. They, they, they couldn't maintain 
their lifestyle. They married out of necessity. They remarried out of necessity. And so I'm sort of fiercely focused on making sure that my wife, Stephanie, and our three boys have the runway and the protection to make good decisions in their lives based on what is important to them, what they want to do. So I'm, um, my life isn't complete, but I'm, uh, I'm living to my potential and then some. I am constantly reinventing myself. Good grief, bro. I'm writing a blog. I write a column. I keynote in front of audiences. I host a podcast. I have a book club. I have a reality TV series in the works. I've had a radio program. I have been in marketing and sales and project management and C-suite. None of these things I had any skill for. None of these things. I just completely forced myself outside of my comfort zone. Sometimes had wild success. Other times had fantastical failure. Picked myself up and said, well, I guess I won't do that. I guess that's not what I'm going to do. What's next? I'm not afraid of, I'm not afraid of people seeing me fail at all. That, that, that word isn't even part of my vocabulary, right? It's just, okay, I learned from that. What's next? What's, what's one of those specific sort of learning or dark moments that created the brightest light for you? What, what were the sort of turning points? You know, I'm going to share one with you. Um, I, w- I worked for the Disney company for four years from the time I was 23 to 27. Disney uh, let me go. They fired me. And I had a lot of people who liked me. And I had an interview for a job in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. It was a low point for me. I had, I had hardly any money. My credit cards were maxed. I managed to get a flight to D.C. and book a hotel room. My credit card did not work at the hotel. I had no options. I was kind of estranged from my parents. I was a pretty young 26-year-old, quite immature, rather impulsive, wasn't managing my money well. And I was in a bind that night. And I called up a friend in California, and she wired me $400, like within 90 minutes. She wired me $400. It was enough to check into the hotel, eat dinner, eat breakfast, get a cab back to the airport, pay for my parking. And I vowed then and there that I would never find myself in that situation ever again. I remember it. I remember I, I remember the name of the hotel. I remember the wiring service that she used to wire the number. It was Thomas Cook, which I think actually went bankrupt during the pandemic, if I'm not mistaken. It was Thomas Cook was the wiring service that she used to wire the money from Los Angeles to this like... Um, Western Union or Thomas Cook office. I remember getting the $400 in my hand and being both equal parts horrified and grateful. And I promised my, that was a dark, that was a dark evening for me. And I was enormously grateful. I was emotionally uh, exhausted and, and, and grateful. And I promised myself I would never be in that situation again. And I haven't. And I have been the first to help other people when they've been in that same situation, when they've called me. Because I, I, I know what it's like to have been in that situation. And there have been, um, please don't call me to borrow money. 
but there have been uh, many situations when someone has been in a desperate bind and I have risen to the occasion with no fanfare and no discussing it publicly because I've been there. That was a dark day for me. And someone came to my aid. And so I make it a, um, I make it a reputation to come to those in that need. Please do not email me to borrow money. <laughs> do, do our voids make our values? I think our parents make our values. Um, my values are direct correlation to my upbringing. I'm not close to my parents. I love them. I respect them. I help care for them. We have very little in common. Uh, they don't get me. I kind of don't get them. But I respect them, and I'm enormously grateful to them for instilling in me a hard work ethic, a level of gratitude, respect for my creator. My parents are fairly simple people, simple-minded people, but they were honest and hardworking and trustworthy. And so I think my values came from my parents, but I'll tell you, I think my parents' values came from their void because my mother's parents were both alcoholics and she basically raised herself and was enormously fearful of where they were going to eat, where they were going to live. So I'm guessing much of my paranoia about financial insecurity comes from my mom. My father's dad died when he was 10 of cancer. And my father's brother died when he was 15 of polio. So my, both of my parents were in essence raised without parents because my dad's mom, although she survived that, she was in mourning for 70 years, right? Lost her husband, lost her twin son, and so I think my parents' values came from their voids. I had very little voids in my upbringing. I was raised in a very um, stable family. Stability at all costs. Sometimes stability even over love or warmth or caring. So I think my values have probably come from my parents' void. Mm. And I'm okay with that because at the end of the day, my parents raised my brother and I in a very stable home. And I think that allowed me to not have to worry about irrational things. And it provided me a very safe launching pad in which to find my passions and find my joy. And I honor them for that. It wasn't a very warm family. It wasn't a very loving family. They would be horrified to hear that. But it was a very stable family. And that's how I think how they knew how to show love was to create stability at all costs because they did not have that and i respect them for that i don't find any fault in them at all it's taken some time to come to that insight but mm -hmm. they gave what they they gave what they knew what they knew was stability that was their quote love language mm -hmm. <clears throat> and i honor them for that what's your love language how do you show love i show love in uh well, if you go over the five love languages, right? Acts of service, words of affirmation, physical touch, gifts, right? Um, probably gifts. I like to give to people. I like to throw dinner parties and bring champagne and take people on vacation. I like to hook people up with publishers or editors. I like to help people. So how I show love is probably helping other people, sometimes too much. My wife thinks I do it too much too abundantly. My wife thinks people take advantage of me. 
And I think the language in which I receive love is words of affirmation, which is unusual for men. Most men receive love through physical touch. I know this because I've interviewed the author, Gary Chapman, of the famous book, The Five Love Languages. My love language I receive it is words of affirmation. I like to be appreciated. I like people to say thank you to me. It's important to me. How are you receiving gifts? Horrible. Absolutely horrible. <laughs> horrible. I do not like you paying for my meal. I do not like you paying, buying me get Horrible. I'm embarrassed. I hate it. I hate it. Isn't that interesting? Dude, you missed your calling. Your calling is not like construction engineer or building engineer. Your calling is... Your calling is listening. You are the definition of a mentor. And I would know because I wrote the number one best-selling book on mentorship. You are the essence of a mentor. You ask big, bold, open-ended questions. You check your agenda. You check your narrative. And you just ask great questions. And you are an, un, you are an unnaturally good listener. It's, it's shocking. Shocking. I'm impressed by you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's very... You're the opposite of me. <laughs> you're calm. You're deliberate. Am I right? Yeah. Thoughtful. You're contemplative. I'm impulsive. I'm impetuous. I say what's on my mind. I'm always in my own narrative. I'm always in my own field of reference, trying to be more like you. Imagine if you and I were like business partners. We would crush it. <laughs> Well, what, what are you great at and what are you terrible at? I'm great at reading a room. Mm -hmm. I'm great at walking in and knowing who has the power and who thinks they have the power. Is that a sense, a feeling, an intuition? What is that? 30 years of corporate America and working in 50 countries and traveling around the world and reading body language. I'm pretty good at reading which way something's going to fall, right? I'm pretty good at thinking five steps ahead. I'm good at being ahead of people. She's going to say this, and then he's going to say that, and then this momentum's going to build this way, so I'm going to skate to the puck over there because this is the way this is going to go, and I want to be over there. Um, I'm good at serving others. Physically, literally, metaphorically, I like to serve others. What am I not good at? My wife's, um, my wife's counterintuitive. My, my wife says sometimes I don't read the situation as good as I think I do. Like my wife says, you know, I'm not aware when I've crossed the line or I've said something that was, I thought, funny, but was insulting. She says that my self-awareness on that sometimes isn't as good as I profess it to be. I think she's probably right. I'm not good at making people feel calm. No one asked Scott Miller to give the eulogy at a funeral. Evacuate a burning building, I'm your guy. I'll get you out alive. You might have a broken arm, you might need therapy, but I will get you out of the burning building alive. You do not hire me to give a eulogy at a funeral. Unless you want to motivate the, uh, <laughs> the participants. Um, Great guy. Let's move you know on. What? 
I'm actually good at bringing humor to tough situations. I can lighten the mood. I could crack a joke at the passing of someone in a hospital room. It might be three minutes too soon. But I could bring to bear something light and tender that had people focus on the person's beautiful passing and legacy as opposed to the trauma. <clears throat> it might be a couple minutes too soon. My intent is to make people feel good. I'm not good at silence. I am extremely uncomfortable with silence. I, I am a perpetual motion machine. I need to be better at silence. Yeah, it's powerful. You're, talk to us about your latest book, Master Mentors. Well, I did four or five times, but thank you for the invitation. So uh, I've written numerous books. Uh, this book is just out called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. It's from HarperCollins. It's available now on every book platform in the world. It basically is a compendium, a collection of 30 of my first podcast guests, not the first 30, but 30 of the first 100, where I thought people said something especially profound on the website or the webcast, rather, on the podcast. It could have been off air. It could have been on air. Famous people like Seth Godin and Dan Pink and the U.S. General Stanley McChrystal, Stedman Graham, who was Oprah Winfrey's 30-year life partner and entrepreneur on his own, Nick Vujicic, a man with no arms and no legs. And so I share a tender story. It's fast. It's witty. It's, it's, it's um, light. And it's kind of chicken soup for the leadership soul, if you know the series. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's 30 chapters, 30 people. 30 transformative insights. I view them as master mentors. Each chapter has one insight that I learned from that person. And then I share a story about how I or somebody else might have um, succeeded with that or perhaps struggled and failed at it as well. It's light, it's easy, it's breedy, it's episodic intentionally. In fact, my first publisher passed on it because they thought it was too episodic. And then HarperCollins saw the vision. It's the first of 10 books. I've just finished the manuscript for Master Mentors Volume 2. You can buy it in digital print and audio. I read the audio book, and I'm now turning it into a video book. I've just signed a license with a new publisher that believes the future of publishing will be people watching their books, not listening or reading them. So all of my books are now in production to turn them into one-hour-long video books. The publisher is called Lit Video, L-I-T. It's an interesting insight to the future of publishing. But Master Mentors is a number one Amazon new release. You can buy it on every major book retailer. It's in also the UK and through Europe. It's being translated into about nine languages right now. I just learned this morning it's being translated into Georgian. Unless, unless Georgians speak Russian and then it's Russian. I don't know. Pause. Being translated into <laughs> Arabic. It was just sold this morning in Arabic in Dubai this morning. So I'm guessing the Georgians. Hmm. Do Georgians speak Georgian or Russian? I, I hope you don't have too many Georgian listeners, but I apologize to my Georgian friends. My <laughs> book will come out in your native language soon. <laughs> what's, the, what's the nicest thing somebody could say about you? The nicest thing someone could say about me is Scott helped someone out at a time of trauma or need and told nobody about it. That would be the nicest thing. 
if someone discovered that I had done something or behaved in a way that was both magnanimous and private. There's like dichotomy there, isn't it? <laughs> it's like to yep. help to help privately, but then to be discovered to have helped privately. I don't know. I, I was being honest. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's yeah. yeah. I didn't yeah. say I needed to print it in the paper, but it would it would be nice, would it not? Mm. It would be nice to do something magnanimous for someone and 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 uh and confidentially privately yeah. someone walk up to you and say, I know what you did. You're a good guy. That, that, I'm just that that's my it is a dichotomy. Um I didn't say it needed to be shared in front of a convention hall of five thousand people. Um that would be nice. No, that makes sense. Does make sense. Because I think sometimes people judge you on one experience they had with you, right? Or one encounter or one conversation where you weren't at your best. And people make, we all make snap decisions about people based oftentimes on an encounter, how we were feeling in the moment, how they perhaps didn't rise to the occasion that you wish they would have. And sometimes I wish my detractors had experienced me in a different setting. Hmm. I don't live my life enslaved to my detractors. I have many detractors. But I do wish that sometimes my detractors could provide me a level of grace and latitude that perhaps they haven't had evidence from which to consider that. Yeah, that's, that's where clarity of your own vision trumps it all, right? Isn't that true? Hmm. What's your, your PhD in what? What is your PhD in? <laughs> Uh, building structures <laughs> <laughs> it's um that's fascinating i mean tell me what's what's a guilty pleasure for scott then what's downtime what are we looking at guilty pleasure is a saturday evening where we have four couples coming over for dinner table is set beautifully music's on candles are lit the dinner's in the oven champagne is chilled children are dressed but playing somewhere nicely my wife and i are sitting on our sofas and that 20 minutes of calm before this you know you know what hits the fan when you got to entertain eight people and we're just sitting there the house is clean the lighting is right and we're just kind of sitting there um calm and enjoying each other's company for 15 20 minutes before the doors bust open the music starts blaring People start drinking and laughing and dancing. That's my, that is my guilty pleasure is sitting with Stephanie after, you know, five hours of preparation, running around like lunatics, cleaning the house and buying the food and prepping it and arguing and fighting, not speaking to each other for 20 minutes because we said something rude to each other, going and getting showers and then sitting down and just realizing we're two people trying to find our way in the world. I'm looking forward to a nice evening with our friends and laughing and having fun. That, that honestly, that 20 minutes before a beautiful dinner party is my favorite thing in life with my wife. Wow. I yeah. can see it very clearly. Like, viscerally, I can see it very clearly. I can see what we're drinking. I can see what we're eating. I can see what we're wearing. I can see the lighting. I can see the color of the sofas. The fire is going. It's winter time. <clears throat> That's it right there, brother. Are you are you clear about your future? Do you know where you're going? Are you pretty clear? 
I guess not my financial future because I'm so obsessed with that, but I'm pretty clear. I hope, uh, I recognize that at 53, I have lived comparatively a very smooth and blessed life. So I, I do, uh, I kind of worry when is my big challenge going to come? I hope it's not with my children's health. I hope it's not with the safety of my family, but I, I can see my future as clearly as I'm able to create it, recognizing that I'm not in complete control. Hmm. And I'm fully aware of that. I can see it pretty clearly. You know, you hear all the time about people my age getting this geoblastoma, right? This, this incurable brain cancer. And from the day of diagnosis to death is four, five, six, seven months. It happens a lot. The more people you know, the more you realize how fragile life is, how you know, prostate cancer, things that men experience, right? A, a car crash, a Tokyo subway attack. I mean, whatever it is, a terrorist attack. So I'm mindful of my mortality and I need to live more in the present. And maybe thanks to this free 90-minute therapy session today, <laughs> I'll be a little bit better at that. <laughs> That's what it's all about. This is the longest podcast and perhaps most enjoyable one. And I have probably been on 350 podcasts in the last two years. This is now without question the most contemplative, longest, and calming cathartic one I've been on. Thank you for that gift to me. I hope your listeners and viewers took something out of my journey. Thanks for the gift you've given to me today. Thank you. Thank you. If you were to try and then describe your fire in the belly in one or two words, what, what would it be, Scott? I think my fire, beyond what I have said numerous times, which is providing for, protecting, providing opportunity to the four people closest to me, my wife and these three beautiful sons, Wentworth, who is seven, Smith, who is nine, and Thatcher, named after my hero, Margaret Thatcher, um, who's 11. I think it's to take all the lessons that I've learned in my life, which, by the way, I've written numerous books. I wrote a whole series called Mess to Success, right? Management Mess to Leadership Success, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Coming out next year is job mess to career success, followed by communication mess to influence success. There'll be parenting mess to launch success, a whole series of 10 of them in this mess to success is to take all these lessons that I've learned and these remarkable corporate careers that I've had and opportunities. I mean, think about it. I've had some amazing opportunities in life to be a Wall Street Journal bestselling author, to host the world's largest leadership podcast is to take these opportunities and share this wisdom with other people. I have been arguably on the beneficiary, on the receiving end of incalculable wisdom from people that have had success that eclipsed mine to no measure, but also who have had failures that you don't know about. These people that have had massive successes, they have shared with me unspeakable tragedy of failure, challenge, perseverance. I'm talking about fire in their belly. People that I've had, you know, Nick Vujicic has been born with no arms and no legs. People that have survived being burned of their entire body and lived not just to tell about it, to live productive, fruitful lives. I'm inspired enormously by these people, which is why I live my life not through the lens of I have to or I ought to, but I get to. I get to leave this podcast, go shave and shower, get in a suit, 
I have two more podcasts today. I have a keynote in front of a massive audience here, hopefully with books, maybe with not. <laughs> I get to write three letters of recommendation to three college students in Utah that have asked for me to write letters of recommendation that are due by 8 p.m. tonight, uploaded into those portals that will kick my butt technically. Fly home two hours to my family, tuck my boys in bed, and get up and do it all over again tomorrow. I salute your focus. I really do. I do. Scott, tell us where can people learn more, find more, stalk you, hunt you down? Well, my wife, Stephanie, says it's not hard because she thinks I'm a bit overexposed. But you can pretty much find me anywhere if you Google Scott Jeffrey Miller. You can visit my website, which is, in fact, scottjeffreymiller.com. All of my books, columns, podcast articles, everything is there. You can purchase my books on every major book platform or retailer, again, in every possible modality. I read all of my audiobooks to the horror of some, to the blight of others. And you can Google me, connect to me on every major social media platform, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, soon to be in December, TikTok. I'll be delivering TikTok messages via my leadership lessons. No dancing or singing. Okay, maybe some dancing occasionally, but um, <laughs> white man dancing, like American Utah white man dancing. You can figure out what that looks like, right? But you know, mainly just inspirational thoughts on um, Love TikTok. Thanks for asking. Is there a final message you'd like to leave our listeners today? There's nothing left, brother. <laughs> we have discussed every orifice of my life. I feel completely thoroughly examined, not violated, but examined. And uh, for those who thought I needed a therapist, mission accomplished. I've just spent the last minute with about 90 minutes with Ireland's most famous non-therapist, uh, Mighty B. Thanks for the time. God, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you. 